Mr. Gecko, I'm there for you 110%. No, 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 no. You don't understand. I want to be surprised. Astonish me, pal. New info. I don't care where or how you get it. Just get it. If you are of a certain age, the first time you saw Michael Douglas as Gordon Gecko on the beach, on his phone, you were astonished. Technology was amazing. And phone conversations in that moment, you realized, would soon change forever. We would soon be wireless. We would soon be empowered. And we were hooked. I wish you could see this. Lights coming up. The movie Wall Street was released by 20th Century Fox in 1987, the same year Jeff Rakes, who was the head of marketing for the applications division within Microsoft, attended a private demonstration of a new software that could make overhead slides. The software had been developed by a small company in Silicon Valley called Forethought. Rakes had that same excited reaction. This would change presentations forever. When he presented the idea to Bill Gates, Gates was unimpressed. Just put that capability into Word, he told him. But Rakes pushed his point and eventually Microsoft bought Forethought as an afterthought and the PowerPoint software it had developed. Flash forward to modern day, just as we're all somewhat addicted to our phones, maybe we've also become addicted to PowerPoint. Today on Stories and Strategies, we speak with Eric Bergman, one of the leading minds in presentations, who says we can get back to basics here with less presentation, a little more conversation. My name is Doug Downs. The music there after the movie scene was called The Tall Weeds, which is the theme from the movie Wall Street, composed by Stuart Copeland. My guest today is Eric Bergman, a longtime friend of mine, joining us in Toronto today. Hey, Eric. Hey, Doug. How are you doing? I'm good. How is the big smoke today? Uh, well, it's, uh, let's see, 13 degrees, so I took the motorcycle out. Uh, and we got rid of that Alberta clipper you sent earlier this week that gave us some snow, so it's a lot better than it was. We're working on another one just for you. Eric, I know you've spent time working as a government public affairs officer and a freelance consultant in both Edmonton and Toronto. Uh, you've written hundreds of speeches for executives in the private, public, and not-for-profit sectors, and you've earned local, national, and international awards for your work. In the 1990s, you began providing presentation skills training and one-to-one -one coaching. And over a span of 30 years, you've helped thousands of clients across six continents develop meaningful content for a host of speaking challenges and deliver that content memorably, which is the key. It is the thing we are going to be talking about today. But it all started way back in 1981 on a college internship putting slides upside down into carousels. Those are humble beginnings, my friend. Uh, they were. <laughs> and a humble ending, too. Uh... <laughs> I remember doing that stuff, but I was in, what, grade four way back in 81? So it's, thank, it's thank you for that. <laughs> now, you believe that we would be better off with less presentation and more conversation, and you've 
putting words to paper to describe the deepest level of, of your thoughts on that in the form of a book. Tell me what that means. Well, the promise of technology is to create conversations that never before existed. So we can text, we can tweet, we can get on social media, and we can have these back and forth exchanges that lead to mutual understanding. Um, None of us would ever start a text conversation with one of our kids by saying, I'm going to send you 15 or 20 or 30 or 40 screens of information. And when I'm done texting, you can ask me some questions. So I've, I've long believed, because as you kindly pointed out, I'm, I'm quite old and I've been around for a long time. <laughs> uh, I've long believed that one of the ironies of the 21st century is that the form of communication that started closest to a conversation, the presentation, has been driven further and further and further away by technology. And today, it's perfectly acceptable to stand up and tell an audience, I'm going to deliver all of my information. And if any of you are still awake, still interested, if you have questions, you can ask me questions at the end. So my philosophy is we should bring that back and forth exchange back to presentations and create more meaningful exchanges between uh, presenters and audiences of all kinds. Name of the book is One Bucket at a Time, and you've alluded to it. Um, tell me what the name is outlining in terms of your philosophy. The only reason for bringing people together in any form of presentation, whether you're in the room or via Zoom, is to listen to somebody share something of value. So let's suppose you're a keynote speaker and you've back in the days when you could travel, when the world wasn't locked down, uh, and you get stuck at an airport en route to a speaking engagement. Could you send your slides and have them flip through your slides and still collect your speaker's fee? No, absolutely not. <laughs> but let's suppose you get to the event and the projector breaks down and you're going to have to work with me here because this one, next statement is a bit of a stretch. And there isn't a projector within 100 miles of your speaking event. Mm -hmm. Could you still deliver your information? Could you still deliver your presentation? I've had that happen, and you're in complete panic mode. It's like driving a vehicle with no steering wheel. That's what it feels like. Well, that's what it feels like. But it really illustrates that the presenter is the most important component of any presentation. If you don't have a presenter, if you don't have a speaker, if you don't have a lecturer, you can't have a presentation speech or lecture. So this book is focused on the idea that feeding into how human beings listen is by far, by far the most important skill any presenter can develop. Are you completely convinced that most people in an audience setting today have those listening skills, have those listening skills turned on, or are they there just sort of half alive and half listening? And is that actually embellishing what you're saying? Yes, because I don't think anybody ever accepts an opportunity to go listen to a presenter with the intent of wasting their time. I don't know anybody who does that. So even if, you know, your boss, it's a command performance and you have to be there, if your boss has something interesting to say, you'll listen. And if your boss says it in an interesting way, it just supports the listening process. What happens is 
there is a nonstop stream of information that comes from presenters that isn't conversational. Mm -hmm. And it's like getting stuck at the party with the person who talks nonstop. (laughs) The more they talk, the less you listen. Of course, they know you're not listening. So what do they do? Do they stop and pause and bring you back? Or do they talk more? And that's where we are with presentations. A couple of weeks ago, we were all riveted to our TV screens as the U.S. election was playing out over a matter of days instead of a matter of hours. And I'll I'll use CNN. I'm not saying it did the best job or the worst job by any means, but it seems to be one of the most accessible at least. So a lot of people watch CNN and we watch John King standing in front of not necessarily a PowerPoint slide, but a digital board. And it was information vomit that was coming at me nonstop. Do you think that was delivered in a conversational style? And why do you think such a large television network would choose that methodology of presentation if it wasn't the most effective? Uh, Well, I I prefer the term overload instead of vomit, but you're on the right track. Sure. Um, So what we have to recognize is that television is fundamentally a different medium than a presentation. They are as different as almost as as print and broadcast. Not quite, but close. Um, what do you how do what do you think about dead air? Oh, it's death. <laughs> exactly. But dead air in a presentation, in a conversation, there are two elements of dead air. The first is for me to think before I'm talking. And we all know that thinking before talking is a good thing. Uh, I come from good Alberta stock. My family motto is lead with the lips. The brain will be along at some point in the future. And as I've acquired my and other people's share of gray hairs, I've, I've had to learn that closing my mouth and thinking before talking is one of the best things I can do. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the coin is the listener. Human beings cannot listen and think at the same time. We just can't do it. Um, If we're processing one idea and the other person's still talking, what they're saying, we cannot process. So a conversation is fundamentally different than television because dead air is essential. I actually had somebody from Alberta who had a broadcasting background go through my presentation skills program one time. And she said to me, oh, I get it. I get it. Finally, I get it. Dead air is my friend. 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 And I said to her, you got it half right. Dead air is my friend. Dead air is my friend. So if there are no pauses, it is not conversational. And the audience cannot process the information. So let's uh, let's get away from CNN and let's use another example that is similar and directly relevant. When you watch the weather report on any television station or listen to a weather report on any television station on the planet, the weather person talks nonstop from start to finish. The reason they do that is because if you're, if they're talking about, and I'm going to use a Toronto example, if they're talking about what's happening in Windsor, for example, or Edmonton, and I'm in Toronto or you're in Calgary, We don't care about Windsor, so we'll ignore that. As soon as they start talking about our location, we tune in and pay attention. When they go elsewhere, we tune out. So there's actually built-in tune-out 
to television, which you simply cannot afford to do uh, in a presentation. Well, and now presentations are changing, right? You you outline quite rightly the difference between television and a presentation, except we're moving to screens now, right? Uh, fewer rooms, more Zooms, Google Meets, uh, Microsoft Teams. So how does that change how we present? Well, uh, hopefully dramatically, because <laughs> the way that most presentations are delivered are poorly done. You know, when we locked down for COVID-19, I thought, okay, I'm going to start writing presentations because I was coming out with the book and I was thinking about doing a blog called The Bucket List, where I actually rate presentations on a scale. I did, uh, before I took a breath, I accepted invitations to 42 presentations. Hmm. Now, I rate presentations out of five buckets. I got one five, one four and a half, one four, a number of three and a half and threes, but I promised myself I would not write a review on a presentation that scored less than 2.5, and at least half of the presentations based on the standard that's in the book and on the blog, at least half did not score 2.5 out of five. Wow. So the standard right now is absolutely terrible from a communication perspective. You begin your book by talking about ulcers. I actually really enjoyed this opening. Um, it comes up as you're describing a scene from the 2011 movie Contagion, distributed by Warner Brothers. In this scene, the lead scientist, played by Kate Winslet, is explaining to her father that she is following in the steps of real-life Nobel winner Dr. Barry Marshall, who discovered ulcers were not caused by spicy food or stress, but by bacteria. So he injected himself with the bacteria to give himself an ulcer to prove his point. What are you doing? It's okay, Dad. No, it's not okay. Do you remember Dr. Barry Marshall? Thought that bacteria caused ulcers, not stress. Gave himself the bug and then cured himself. You taught me about him. I'm testing my vaccine. This is different. I don't want to get you sick. Ellie, you can't take that chance. Oh, Dad. You're here because you stayed in your practice treating sick people after everyone else went home. You took that chance. You took that chance every day. <laughs> what? Won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> yes, I know that. Very much. The reason I selected that was because I wanted to make the point that it's possible for a large group of highly intelligent, well educated individuals to follow a fundamentally incorrect assumption. I was diagnosed with a duodenum ulcer in the mid 1970s. My doctor and I thought it was because of stress. Our parents were splitting up and it was a while before it actually occurred. Uh, we knew it wasn't spicy food because my mother was British and she cooked most of our meals. Um, and by 1982, um, when uh, Dr. Marshall and his colleague discovered that it was bacteria, they actually went out on the circuit and tried to convince their peers that spicy food and stress were not the cause of ulcers. 
they had no luck. And it wasn't until Dr. Marshall injected himself with the bacterium that causes ulcers that his peers believed him. And in 2005, he won the Nobel Prize for his efforts. Mm -hmm. So my case here is that we have exactly the same process going on with presentations. The concept of testing presentation effectiveness, visual presentation effectiveness, wasn't even thought about until PowerPoint had been on the market for 20 to 25 years. When you get to that point, you have this deeply ingrained assumption. And, uh, and of course, the only test in my mind that matters is if you deliver two presentations, you deliver exactly the same information. In one, you show slides in the standard way that we've seen thousands upon thousands of times. And one, you don't even turn on the projector, but you draw a diagram where it's necess necessary to illustrate a visual concept. And you test each audience's understanding on what was presented. The audience that didn't see the slides scores 20 to 30% higher on the test than the audience that did see the slides. Are there strategic moments when my point is best made with a presentation as opposed to a blog, an article, uh, a book like you've written, a podcast like this one? Well, we only have two ways to communicate as human beings. We have the written word and we have the spoken word. Nothing more, nothing less. Each one has its strengths and weaknesses. The written word is great for capturing information in space and time. You can build knowledge one layer on the next based on what you've read before, and you can add to a knowledge base. And it's there for people to review, and you can lift your head, and it's still waiting for you. It's a passive medium. It's still there for you when you go back to it. The spoken word is phenomenal for bringing uh, a better understanding of ideas in a collective format. To do that, however, you have to have the exchange. Presentations today are like playing tennis with somebody who has a huge basket of balls, and they're not going to stop serving until that basket is completely empty, whether you show any interest at all in hitting one back. And all the brain science says serve and return. Exactly. That's what a conversation is. It's that back and forth process. Now, if you, if you came to practice service returns, you might play along, otherwise you're going to find something else to do. And I have a client who, uh, who captured this for me because we were working together, and he said, so this is what I tell my salespeople all the time. Never say blah, 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 when blah will do. Eric, I am really glad we finally had the chance to do this. Uh, we'll, we'll put up a, a link in the show notes uh, for people to be able to get a copy of your book. Um, the other thing I would say is that this is different. Um, it, it'll be hard to just read the book and go out and do this as a presentation style. Think about contacting Eric and helping him, uh, helping you uh, work through some of these different things. Eric, thank you so much for getting together with me today. You're very welcome, Doug, and thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to work with you. If you'd like to send a message to my guest, Eric Bergman, you can email him at FWIW. It's actually easy. It's for what it's worth at me.com. 
If you're interested in the book, we've got the link in the show notes. And if you liked what you heard today, we're hoping you choose to subscribe to Stories and Strategies, receive updated episodes automatically. And more than anything else, uh, we're hoping that you share Stories and Strategies with just one friend. If you have an idea for an episode or you just want to tell us something, send us a note at info at jgrcommunications.com. Thanks for listening.